Hello, I'm Farmer Charles, a dairy, beef and arable farmer from Warwickshire. And I'm Dr Rachel, an NHS GP from Oxfordshire. And this is The Pharmacy. So alongside farming, my passions are helping people to understand how their food is produced, where it comes from and how we, as farmers, are looking to protect and enhance the environment around us. And I'm passionate about empowering people to take control of their own health and well-being by giving them the information they need to make better lifestyle choices. But we know that the story doesn't end there. We're going to interview people from all walks of life to find out their perspective on food, health, where it all comes from and how it all fits together. This is The Pharmacy. Hello and welcome to episode one of The Pharmacy. Today we are talking all about milk. So Charlie, how are you going? How's, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a quite a good week for me. This is the the lull before the storm for us. So the cows are all happily milking away, and we're just waiting for. Well, we're waiting for a bit more rain, to be honest with you. But farmers mm-hmm. are always moaning about the weather. You, you always like a bit of a weather moan, don't you? Yeah, we've got to, we've got to have something to moan about. And the weather's always a good option. Uh, yes, and we're just looking around the crops, and I think the combine might be out in a couple of weeks. So we'll start getting to our busy period. Fantastic. How about you, Rach? I'm good. I'm good. As you know, I have just returned from the States. So um been to New York to visit um, my brother, who, you know, is the reason that we also know each other. Um, so I had a really interesting trip thinking from a food perspective. Um, fascinating. I feel like I'm looking at everything related to food these days. Um, and, you know, a few things that struck me in particular was, you know, the portions over the, in the States are crazy. Every time you go, it's always a surprise. Um, and yeah, and I, I think there seems to just be this still this kind of difference between here and there about the ultra processed food and so much around. So, yeah, I, as I say, I feel I'm ultra aware at the moment, but it was very interesting. Yeah, I think we certainly seem to be following their trends as well, which is worrying. Mm. Yeah. So so let's crack on because we have got a lot to talk about with our subject of, of milk today. But um, I, before we start, Charlie, have you heard the one about the cow that jumped over the barn? No, go on. It was legendary. Oh, God, that's <laughs> shocking. I can't believe I never even thought I haven't even got anything to wind you up. <laughs> oh, I had to get in there first oh. this week after, after the GP one last week. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, moving on to milk. So obviously being a dairy farmer, you have a lot of knowledge and a lot to lot to say about this subject. I mean, certainly from my perspective, milk in general practice is something that we actually talk about quite a lot for lots of reasons. Um, you know, you think back to when we were kids, really, it was cow's milk or, you know, maybe some UHT or some dried milk. But now on the market, we have this huge expanse of milk, um, you know, from oat, rice, soya, almond. Um, and this is why we wanted to talk about this today, Charlie, isn't it? Yeah. And I do think it's important for us to have choice and have diversity. 
But at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, and I am going to be biased being a dairy farmer, is there an alternative? We're talking about the most nutritiously complete superfood known to man. This, this is the thing of, you know, fairy tales almost. It's a wonder food. There's no comparison, surely. Well, let's see what our first ever guest has to say about that, Charlie. So um, I'm absolutely thrilled that Kerry um, Locke is here to join us today. She is a nutritional therapist who I actually work close with, I'm very pleased to say. Um, she's a nutritional therapist at Sophia in Oxfordshire. And she leads the Nourish and Flourish uh, program, which I have also worked with her um, in developing. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, but she also has a background of being a lecturer at the University of Oxford, um, the Department of uh, Environmental Conservation and Sustainability. So she not only comes with some expert knowledge of nutrition and food, but also has a, a vast amount of knowledge about environmental factors and food sustainability. So I'm absolutely thrilled that uh, Kerry is joining us today. Hi, Kerry. Hi, thank you both for inviting me along. It's really exciting. The first ever episode. I feel very privileged. Oh, it's, it's great <laughs> to have you here. And just, I don't think anybody's just... going to get an introduction as big as that, surely. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you built me up for? <laughs> Kerry, just um, just take a minute because the Nourish and Flourish programme is kind of our baby. Uh, just just take a minute to um, to tell us about Nourish and Flourish. Yeah, so so Nourish and Flourish, the aspiration really is all about free nutritional support within the community. Um, and uh, as Rachel alluded to, so we have been developing that. We launched that last January. I can't believe it's been that long. It's amazing. Um, and, and effectively, we've been exploring different ways to embed nutritional support within the community. And, and we've effectively focused down on three key branches. Um, the first is nutritional therapy support, which I provide one-to-one um, -one in kind of a clinical setting, and that's referrals direct from the GPs, diabetic nurses, and social prescribers. The second uh, is a Nourish Flourish school program, and um, that's integrated nutrition. Basically, I've written nutrition into the core curriculum for maths and history and biology and geography. Um, and that's uh, actually at the pilot expansion stage at the moment, as Rachel knows, we've got 455 students on that at the moment, busying away. Um, one of the Nourish Flourish uh, community chefs was out uh, at one of the schools today, um, yeah. taking the students through their paces, learning how to cook with surplus food. Um, so that hopefully we're going to be able to blow up and roll out much, much further as we move forward. The feedback's been absolutely incredible. And last year, the initial pilot, 77.4% of students said they'd make um, better, healthier choices in their life because of the programme, which is incredible. And then the third element is the Nourish Flourish Kitchen, which we're currently in the process of, of building down at Sophia. Um, and that's going to be offering kind of employability opportunities and cultivate cooking skills training, both in our young people and for the local uh, community, particularly those coming through as patients as well. So we might it might look like groups uh, the community engagement days might look like groups of um, adults with type 2 diabetes or families with children with autism, maybe struggling to eat a diversity of foods. So loads and loads of opportunities for us to, to, to work with with that kitchen. So very, yeah. very exciting time. And it's it's brilliant that, you know, we're able to work together, Rachel. It's been absolutely it fantastic. And it comes down to our core beliefs that we believe that actually having nutritional knowledge, having the ability to cook good food makes a huge difference to your health and well-being. 
um yeah. and um yeah which has been fantastic but let let's talk about our main topic today which which is milk so i thought i would just start off um by giving a little bit of a background of what the nhs recommend the nhs website is really my bible to go to if i have any queries and basically the recommendation is that um with children that you you know breast milk is always the best option if possible up to 6 months um but if not a, an infant formula and babies should be given formula or breast milk up to the age of 12 months as their as their drink and then after that age you can start to give them whole cow's milk as their drink but you can use cow's milk you know mixed in with food and as part of a meal from the age of six months um it when it comes down to um children having alternatives the recommendation is that you don't start um, milk alternatives such as soya oat etc um until uh, the age of one year and there's several reasons for that nutritionally um there are some instances where children are allergic to cow's milk they have a cow's milk protein allergy and then this is something that you need to get advice from your gp about and you will be given either a specific formula um where the the proteins are broken down in very rare occasions we do sometimes use an alternative such as a soya formula but that's unusual um and then going forward it's recommended that we you know from the age of two we're switching over to semi-skimmed milk and we it is recommended that we are all using dairy products or dairy alternatives to make sure that we have enough calcium in our diet which is obviously really important for our bones our muscles our teeth um so that is just a very quick rundown um any comments on that charlie uh, do you know, yeah, I obviously I'm going to be fully supportive of cow's milk. Um, and it's interesting. I, I was quite impressed with that you didn't refer to it as full fat, um, which is a common misconception that people think that milk is a fatty drink. When we talk about whole milk, what you're buying in the shop is only 3.75% fat content. It's still, you know, fat free almost. Um, and yeah, and we talk about calcium, but it's not just calcium. It, it It's just full of so many of our essential minerals and vitamins that we need for daily life. And that's why I always refer to it as a superfood, because I believe, although no doctor would obviously advise it, nobody would, but it's the one food that we can survive on. If we literally mm. just had milk and nothing else, we could survive on cow's milk. We could survive for some time. I think we'd probably come we'd, we'd get iron deficient after a certain time. But I do take your point that there is it is very rich in protein. It's got fats. It's got a lot of vitamins. It's a very, very good source of calcium. Um, I'll bring you in, Kerry. One of the things that I think is fascinating is now that we have such a huge variety of milks available to us. Could you just go through kind of what your take on is what the key nutritional benefits of the different milks are? Yeah, sure. And and as you said, there's this a massive array of different milks. So I won't go through every single one of them because it's quite a list now. So let's touch on some some of the major ones. Um, we'll start off with dairy cow's milk. Um, and as Charles said, you know, obviously this is a wholesome, complete food. You know, it comes out of a mammal and it's it's destined to be a package which is specifically designed for, for, for growth and development. 
Um, so as you said before, it, it does provide a lot of the macronutrients, so fats, proteins, carbohydrates, but importantly, the macro, uh, the micronutrients, so the minerals and, and the vitamins. So specifically thinking about the calcium, obviously, that we need to um, build bone structure, selenium, which is really important for the immune function, uh, riboflavin, so that's vitamin B2, healthy nervous system, right through to some really core ones um, like vitamin D, which um, we need to regulate the calcium and the phosphate, um, which is obviously important in the body um, in terms of, of, again, building bone structure. Um, iodine and zinc and vitamin B12 are three other really key elements that are in standard dairy milk um, that's worth highlighting. Mainly zinc is because it's important for bone formation um, and, um, and iodine, because again, that's important in like skeletal um, development in babies specifically. Okay. Um, and how does that compare to our kind of, you know, I'd say, you know, we're seeing mainstream non-dairy milks like soya, oat. How's, how's that comparing, Kerry? So what I would say is that across the spectrum of plant-based beverages, as I would call them, um there is a massive differential um mm. and they are not all equal and it's very important for people to understand that although they can be very much part uh, of a balanced healthy diet people have to be very aware of the um the differences in the balance of the vitamins across the different plant-based um milks so for example, um, soya really comes at the very top of the league, um, if I am honest, because of the high protein content, which really matches that of dairy milk. Um, contrary to some belief, you know, all plants do contain all 20 amino acids, but the key element is that they are at differential levels. And that's mm -hmm. where I think some people get confused. They think that some plants just don't have any, don't have all of them, but it's very, very different levels. And that's where it comes down to people needing to be super careful about their dietary intake uh, and the mix that they're getting. And we'll go on to chat about that a bit later as well. But also the, the soya uh, calcium level is very similar to dairy milk uh, as well. Um, it's about 120 uh, milligrams per 100 grams. Um, so almost a match for match. It's also soy is very high in folate uh, as well and and the zinc and, and it has iron and, and the vitamin E as well. So for me, it is as, it's as close um, to, to, to dairy milk as, as we as we can get without some of the other core elements, unfortunately, like B12, which is added as a fortified element normally. Um, most of the calcium is added as fortified as well. And we'll maybe talk more about that a bit later because I want to make a very clear differential between absorption rates of the different calcium additives. Um, when it comes to the likes of almond milk, it's very low in protein um, and uh, compared to dairy. A lot of people drink it because they, it's low, uh, low calorie. Um, it is high in vitamin E and vitamin A, but it scores very low across a lot of the other elements. Um, and we'll come on to environmental elements further further along, but um, I'll leave almond milk there for now. But um, when it comes to rice milk, um, certainly when I was a child, my brother had uh, an allergy to, to milk. So soya milk and rice milk were in our house from an early, early time. Um, and it's worth pointing out, so rice milk really shouldn't be given for under five-year-olds at all um, because of the arsenic levels in there. Yeah, thank so you for mentioning really that. Yeah. 
Um, so although rice milk, again, you know, high in B2 and folate and zinc and, and iron, it is high in carbohydrates, which obviously causes complications for a number of individuals, particularly anyone suffering with diabetes um, and needing to, to, to clock that level of carbohydrates and uh, and calories. Um, that leads on to coconut milk, which um, is high in saturated uh, fats. And although, yes, as, as Charles already alluded to, there are some fats in, in milk, but nowhere near as, as high as, as coconut milk. I mean, anything with coconut in, I generally steer most people away from that. It's There's a lot of um, videos on YouTube steering people towards coconut in all levels, whether you're looking at oils and such like, but it's uh, saturated fats then, I mean, how bad are they? Because there's a lot of research now saying actually they're not. So uh, in terms of saturated fats, they can have two key impacts. So they can block the entrance of the insulin taking sugar into your cells, um, which can cause problems from uh, a buildup of uh, sugars in the blood, um, which potentially could either uh, aggravate anyone with already existing diabetes or potentially build that up into a diabetic situation. The second is that the saturated fats can block the LDL receptors on the liver. So what they're doing is they're taking out what's called the, the bad cholesterol from the blood and taking it out through the liver and, and getting it out of the body. But the saturated fats um, can block those receptors um, and then therefore cause a buildup in, in the bad cholesterol. Um, and so it's really, really important for people to be careful of their saturated fat intake and try and swap as much as possible over to unsaturated fats. And there's a whole plethora of lovely unsaturated fats available. Um, and I won't go into to the finer, finer details of it, but um, for people to be able to get a lot of sort of nuts and um, um, they can have uh, sort of fish, for example, for omega-3, um, avocados is a great unsaturated fat as well. I try and encourage people to have. So, um, but I think that those are two key challenges in terms of the impact of, of saturated yeah. fats. And I think because coconut is not from an animal, I don't think many people would realize that there are saturated fats. I think one of the dangers, if you like, is that people make assumptions that if something is plant-based, it is it is healthy. And that, so I think that is a really interesting fact about the coconut milk. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's true, things that are labelled plant-based aren't necessarily the, the healthiest. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges that you alluded to, Rachel, in terms of hyper-processed products. It doesn't matter what someone's diet, personal diet of choice is. It's the biggest challenge is trying to get people as close to whole food as, as we possibly can. Yeah. Um, so we... You you kind of touched on it, Kerry, and coming back to it, that many of the non-dairy drinks are calcium rich because they have calcium additives. And, and the same goes for other um other occurring um vitamins in, in these drinks. What should people be looking out for to make sure? Because there is obviously variation. And as far as I'm aware, there are not kind of um, requirements for them to have certain levels and certain additives so what do people need to be looking out for I mean one I would alert people to the fact that when it comes to organic these um, non-organic um, then there is when it comes to, to, to dairy um, there is some growing evidence-based 
from observational data that there are some health benefits with all the organic, but it's really not conclusive yet. So they cannot make a definitive statement from an evidence-based point of view. But what I would want to highlight from a plant-based beverage point of view is that the organic um, alternatives to milk are not fortified. Um, and, and this is really key because it comes back to that original point we were talking about that these plant-based beverages are very, very sort of differential in terms of the level and quality. Um, and some people, if they're not very cautious of what they're intaking, can end up with an imbalance of iodine and selenium and zinc vitamin A, vitamin D, um, B2 and B12. So it's not that you can't have it. It very much can be part of a healthy diet, but you can't rely and assume that um, the milk will be will contain all these elements. Oh, yeah. yeah, going going on that organic conversation, it's something I often speak to fellow farmers about. Um, yeah, th there is evidence that there's uh, higher omega-3s and things in organic produce. But actually, I question how much benefit is that when you look at the price comparison? For me, I think you're better off having something that's affordable and available for everybody rather than having something that's almost become an elitist. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the prices. I did a bit of a price comparison as well on all different types of milk. And um, just on the, I looked at one shop and you're looking at generally kind of um, two pounds a litre for your kind of soya milk, you you know, oat milk, et cetera. And then it's about 68 pence a litre for um, dairy milk. And this is obviously something that you and I have um, extensive experience in Kerry is looking at people who do not have, um, they do not have the cash to be buying expensive produce. And we're always looking at ways for them to getting into their diet, what they need at the most affordable way. Um I also worry that almost the price sometimes gives people the false impression that it is a, a superior product. Um, so that that kind of gives me a couple of concerns. Yeah, I, I would jump in there because you're absolutely right. And that's why for, for anyone who's obviously as a nutritional therapist, I try and maximize nutritional intake and benefits, whatever they're given in diet. Um, and you're absolutely right. Many their go-to will be cow's milk because it is cheaper, and and obviously as we talked about already, it's a wholesome, wholesome, complete product. But there are a lot of individuals out there that are lactose intolerant. That there there is definitely a need for some alternatives. Um, and um, although in Europe, obviously it's only about five percent, mm. um, but escalated up. Obviously South America, fifty percent. Asia, yeah. over ninety percent. So. Um, very differential. What I would say in the other thing I would add in terms of the protein differentials of the of the the plant milks is that grains tend to be limited in in the lysine amino acid, um, and conversely, the beans and and legumes tend to be limited in the the methanine. So that's why at the moment there's a lot of research going into development of new products to try and improve the nutritional quality of alternative um, plant-based beverages so that you'll see on the market that some of them are already coming on the market where they're a mix of both the legumes and the grains for that purpose. And that's why often a lot in uh, consultations I'll advise individuals to mix um, their beans with the grains and and research demonstrates as long as that's within 24 hours it doesn't have to be together in the meal as long as within 24 hours you're getting um you're making sure that you're getting that full complement. So although I said plants have the full complement of 20 amino acids there are very differential levels that's why often people will 
they often term complete protein and and actually technically they're all complete proteins in the sense they've got a little bit of the amino acids but they don't have enough and that's why it's important yeah. for people that are looking at alternatives to, to get that balance right yeah I think I, I I hope it's okay to mention this Kerry I think what I find fascinating so Kerry is um a vegan um but what has always struck me with you Kerry is that you you've been a vegan for many years haven't you and you are a very healthy person <laughs> but <laughs> you have very very extensive knowledge about what you need to eat I remember you said to me once I don't really like sprouts, but I know I need to have a certain amount in my diet for this. And I thought, wow, um, you know, I just your knowledge is very, very extensive. And it is it is more extensive than the vast majority of people. Um, and so I think it, it, it sometimes worries me as, you know, excluding anything from diets excludes me because you just have to really, really have the know how in order to get the you know to get the balance right which you manage very well but a lot of people don't and, and what worries me is a lot of people that don't understand it um well we're, we're all easily led by advertising and money and it, it's the process that well the ultra processed foods that are the big money makers and we see a lot of that and, and I, yeah vegan and non-vegan foods alike but looking at the Milk alternatives, I mean, how many of them would you class as ultra processed? And is that a concern? Yeah, I, I would say, obviously, the more you move away from the original food source, and often people will talk about like the food matrices, you know, the, the, the sort of the, from the whole food. Once you start breaking down those cells walls, they become less nutritious in many and certainly almond milk I would say is is a case in point you'd be better off having a handful of almonds your 30 grams of almonds um, than you would necessarily having the milk in in that sense um to, to, to lift the nutritional elements so with all of the this these things in mind Kerry what would you say that the main things are that people need to be looking out for on on the plant-based products so I think from the calcium richness element, um, people need to be mindful of thinking about the bioavailability of, of the calcium. So, um, for example, um, there are various studies looking at the bioavailability of calcium carbonate um, in the fortified in the in the soya milk. And it is equivalent to cow's milk, which is fantastic news, obviously. But this is not the case for um, tricalcium phosphate. Um, of which the absorption was only found to be 75% of that of dairy milk. So it's really important for people to, to take care and, and check what which which additives are in, in the milks that they're drinking. But the next main one I would say is to take care of added sugars. So many of the milks across the whole spectrum, because obviously people with their palate um, it, like, like sugars. And so um, and a lot of the organi corporate organizations are looking for that sweet spot, quite literally. So um, take care to make sure that you are not having added sugars in there. Um, look, check the label. It, it will clearly be, be shown. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the NHS uh, guidelines are clear to, to make sure that it's under five grams of sugar per, per 100, 100 grams of food. But ideally, there should be no added sugars in there at all. So it goes without saying that things like the chocolate milks and, and such like <laughs> will be a, a little bit of indulgence rather than a health food. 
Um, Great. <laughs> so it's also worth pointing out as well, because I know that there'll be a lot of people out there that are thinking um, making their own homemade milks might be a, a healthier option. But of course, one that won't have the fortified elements in it as well. And actually, when it comes to things like um, the almond milk, um, if you make it at home, the levels of oxalates in it are just astronomical um, and that really blocks the absorption of the calcium. So um, we're talking like, yeah, it's like 68 um, milligrams per hundred mils compared to say 0.2 milligrams in cow's milk or uh, two uh, milligrams in soya milk. So there's quite a significant difference. That is specifically for people making the milks at home, um, just, just to have an awareness uh, of the impact of the differential and and that goes across the board we'll, we'll come on to other elements now and in the way that food's treated and, and the bioavailability of calcium that's that's some really really important tips there Kerry thank you I had no idea about the making a home um thing to be aware of um it, it, just a, a final kind of thing to consider with the with the health perspective before we coming on to the environmental factors I mean I I see a lot of patients with um osteoporosis so thinning of the bones um, part of that, that, I mean, there are many factors which predispose you to osteoporosis, but one of it can be um, not having adequate calcium intake when you're growing or, you know, throughout life. Um, and it can be a very, very serious condition, predisposing you to significant fractures, for example. Um, I have real concern as we look at poorer diets in the children that we we are seeing now um, and coupled with reduced physical activity which helps your bone density that we're going to see even more osteoporosis in the future um, is this something that you, you would agree with Kerry and how how should we be trying to tackle this with children yeah I mean I'd like to cover everybody actually <laughs> if that's possible to do in a very quick space of time um, I think that uh, if we start from from the top in terms of um, the, the basic evidence base, there are numerous papers for, for the elderly. So if we're looking at 70 years plus, um, actually lifting the protein levels actually helps um, reduce the, the risk of osteoporosis. So um, looking at levels of one to 1.2 um, grams of protein per kilogram of weight just to enable that maintenance of the, the calcium metabolism, basically. Um, and, um, but when it comes to sort of the, the, the general population, I would say numerous things. If they are not able to have milk, cheese, any dairy products, because that's the default effectively for anyone that, that comes in the door because of the high levels of, of calcium, then the alternatives, obviously, we've already talked about the soy milk and, and how well that matches uh, against the, the dairy milk. But I would implore them to think about the, the bioavailability um, and focus on foods like kale, for example, which has got very good high bioavailability of calcium. Um, and things like tofu or tempeh as well um, is exceptionally high. I mean, the, the NHS guidelines for the intake for calcium is only um, 700 uh, milligrams per per day nine, for 19 to 64 year olds um, and so um, the tofu and tempeh you know proportion which is about 120 grams that's that's, that's 420 milligrams right there um, yeah. in one meal which is amazing so so people don't need to be concerned there are other ways and avenues if they do have these allergies or intolerances 
think it just comes down again to the fact that so I, I very frequently see patients who will say, oh, you know, my kids don't like milk or they, they don't tolerate it and they just cut it out of the diet. But actually, there just needs to be an awareness that if you are doing that, you have to have adequate alternatives in your diet. It's absolutely crucial. And on top of that, it's the, the two other crucial elements are the vitamin D levels um, and um, and the, the vitamin B12, uh, along with other minerals like the zinc that we've already mentioned as, as well. And obviously, if they're getting a diversity of things like the legumes and beans and, and such like that are high in calcium, then they will also get that other spectrum of, of minerals as well. But um, regarding vitamin D, obviously, normally anyone on a... Um, a, a diet where they will have dairy products and, and, and animal products, then I would encourage them to have dairy milk and eggs for the vitamin D. Um, but anyone that's not having mushrooms that are grown in the sunlight is absolutely phenomenal in terms of their vitamin D level. Again, it's just having that awareness. And this is one thing, Rachel, with the Nourish and Flourish program, I would love to obviously reach a point where I can create this like 101 booklet yes. of advice because yes. you did sandwich a lot of this into like a bite-sized booklet of just like these are the key top things that you need to know and yeah. I would love to do that if anyone's out there would love to sponsor us then <laughs> <laughs> nice nice plug but Rachel <laughs> you, you, you talked about um you know p- parents that you know children are lactose intolerant and they'll, they'll just mm. or they believe they are and just cut out milk altogether yes. straight away but yeah that might be the milk but then your things like your yogurts your cheeses yeah. They're, they're yeah. still fine then, uh, and that that's how we we became to become lactose tolerant, isn't it? Through the absolutely. processing of milk. Yes, absolutely. And I think so. Lactose intolerance, first to say, as Kerry mentioned earlier, is not hugely common in in the UK compared to in other countries. So lactose intolerance is basically when you have lower amounts of the enzyme lactase or no. Um, lactase in your in your intestine which means you can't break down the lactose sugar in milk and you can therefore get side effects such as bloating now a diarrhea as well now it is worth saying that this is an intolerance rather than an allergy so yes it is unpleasant but it is not like a nut allergy that you have to avidly avoid things Um, and actually I think what a lot of people don't do is to try different forms so, you know, you might not be able to drink a pint of milk straight off, but you might be absolutely fine having something with cooked dairy products in, for example, um, and smaller amounts and giving it different different times. Whereas I, I often find that people just have a blanket approach. They think it's dangerous and they cut out dairy and you're potentially doing your kids more harm by just lacking that calcium in their diet. And there are there are dairy, well, not alternatives. Uh, there are forms of milk which have got the that. Um, that yeah, so you can get lactose free milk yeah. where the enzyme has been added, so you yeah. then shouldn't have that problem. Um, so another, interestingly, in small kids, it's very uncommon. But what you can sometimes see is that if if a child has had an episode of gastroenteritis, they then have a temporary. Um, lactose intolerance your gut has been damaged by the infection but if you stay off milk for a couple of weeks it will come back and you'll get back to normal so that's always also a common thing that we see one thing I I would also add there was a a brilliant study uh, called the epic study (laughs) oh grandeur at uh, Oxford University um, and and they looked across all the different diets and incidents of fractures 
um, just to look at whether that had an impact. Um, and um, initially they they concluded um, based on subjects having an intake of 525 um, milligrams a day. And of course, as I've already said, it's the actual daily intake requirement is 700. They were looking at 525 and in that they found a difference between diet types, but um, particularly thinking of the vegans at that level, but once they accounted for vegans having the daily intake at 700, there was no difference between the diet. So that's really positive in itself, but it comes back to the point of the challenge of making sure you get, you hit that and Absolutely. ideally above the recommended daily intake. That's the key challenge. So it's not once you get that balance right, there is yes. no reason there should be, should be higher risk. So, Kerry, I think we've had a really good look into the nutritional differences between milk and all the various alternatives. And you have highlighted a number of concerns. But what about the environmental impacts and differences? You know, there's been a recent study I've seen where it claimed that 53% of people are vegan because they thought, well, in, in part, it was due to environmental reasons. I mean, for me, when you look at the environment and sustainability, what can be better than milk? It's a natural product and it's produced here right on our doorstep. And when you look at the farmland here in the UK, two thirds of all of our land is incapable of growing a food crop. You know, it's marginal ground. It's only good for grazing. And this is where much of our livestock is reared. And with, you know, the climate we've got here, we're getting grass growth for around about nine months of the year. And our cows are utilising that and they're turning that grass into milk. Now, it's fair to say, yes, we are feeding other things as well. Uh, there are a small amount of, you know, edible crops that are going into our cows. But the vast majority of the other things that we're feeding are byproducts from our food processing industries. You know, we're utilising waste. And if we take the example of soya, though we don't use soya in our dairy rations and a lot of farmers I know don't use it. But actually, the soya that's being used by livestock in this country a lot of people claim that 80% of all the soya in the world is fed to livestock. And that 80% figure is really interesting. But it's because the 20% is actually the oil that's been abstracted from the soya bean. And that's used for things like your, your soya milk and a lot of your food processing. But also a lot of things like cosmetics and other oils. And so the 80% that's left, what farmers are utilising, is actually a waste, a byproduct. So it's just another one of those things that our cows are using alongside grass and upcycling it to produce a superfood, milk. So yes, just come on to that, Charles. I think for, for myself, obviously this is not my primary research area, but um, if sort of you look at the, the existing research data, um, particularly there was um, a massive comprehensive study um, from Oxford University, Poor and... Um, Nemesek, and um, they evaluated, it was over 550 different research papers. I, I always go to this, like the systematic reviews or these multivariate papers because they're so powerful um, and, um, and they cover, you know, that effectively covered tens of thousands of farms of data effectively. Um, but what was interesting, they really found this divergence between like not just the milks, but also the, the, the plant base as well as the dairy. So um, they did report looking at um, the effect of different agriculture and food practices on the environmental impact. 
they reported that the dairy milk had higher greenhouse gases um, uh, emitted, uh, higher eutrophication, um, higher land use, which was effectively um, ninefold above any other plant base. Um, but when it comes to things like the water use, that's where it gets really interesting because actually on a relative scale that almond and rice, uh, almond particularly is off the charts and just leaves dairy and soya behind for dust um, and is a, is a real issue. It's why personally as a vegan, I don't drink almond milk um, because that, that pull uh, on the water is, is far too great. Um, and um, compared to, to soya and, and oat, very, very different. Although the latter two, interestingly, the soya and the oak take up a lot more land use. So, so it's, a, it's a really interesting round uh, discussion. Charles, you've got yeah, to go It's interesting that you go on that polynomic papers and research, and that uh, is commonly brought up and has been dispelled by a lot of academics uh, we'll start with the greenhouse gas emissions, and there's a lot of research. Again, um, uh, Oxford Martin University, um, and they've just come up with a new way that's been approved, the way that we measure greenhouse gases, and the difference between methane and carbon dioxide, which we get from fossil fuels. And it's the fact that methane is a short-lived gas. Carbon dioxide from fossil fuels is entering the atmosphere and staying up there to anything up to a 1,000 years where methane, the half-life, is around about 13 years. And if we aren't increasing livestock numbers, that's actually a stable level of, carbon, of methane in the atmosphere. And it's actually part of the biogenic carbon cycle. So actually, our cows are eating the grass, which is encouraging grass growth. That's encouraging more photosynthesis. It's sequestering more carbon. And that carbon that they're grazing, yes, they're releasing some as methane. They're also adding some to themselves as, you know, the carbohydrates they're eating. Um, so really, that's been dispelled, the greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, God. I know, I've just come back in because what I was going on to say, Charles, <laughs> was that about keeping the context of greenhouse emissions in the wider context. So, so actually, when you look, and this is again comes back from the, the Oxford studies, um, when you look at the whole supply chain uh, where dairy milk sits against things like eggs and rice and chocolate and coffee, it sits below them. So, so when people are making, if they're making choices from an environmental perspective, their milk sits way below things like the beef yeah. production um, and even olive oil and palm oil production as well. It sits below that if you look at that those same data sets. And, and that's still using that GWP 100 as opposed to the new GWP star method as well. Yeah, no, that is an interesting point and worth raising, yeah. definitely. But but like any of these data sets, you know, you they are built upon making a certain amount of assumptions. And, and it's such a complex thing to be able to analyze that, you know, these were the best measures at that at that time. And and you're, you know, comparing like for like. So, but definitely I just think it's worth yeah. just pointing that out that on our, on our whole stuff. The, the other big one is the water use as well. And actually in that study, the water use, um, the vast majority of it is rainfall, which falls onto the pasture land, which is then used for grass growth. 
So there's a whole difference between green water and blue water. So actually that figure, and I can't remember what it is, it's a ridiculous figure, something like 19,000 litres per kilogram of beef. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's nothing like that. My cows couldn't even drink that amount in a lifetime, let alone be using that much. So it, it, it's, it's what's the staying statistics, statistics and damn statistics. It's, it's how you interpret them. Uh, and we've got to be very careful of that. And But it's water that we have in this country. We're a temperate climate. So I think regardless of whatever your diet, we need to be looking at what's available on our doorstep and what we can utilise. Yeah, no, I but I come back to that point about the water, actually, because that's where it comes back to the almond milk, because obviously that's not grown in this country and it's not water from this country. Um, and that's, again, why from an environmental, it's a draw in areas that are quite arid anyway. So it's it's a real, real pressure in that sense. Yeah, California. I think is it ninety percent of all the almonds are in California. Yes, that is that is right. And they have got serious problems with their groundwater. Serious problems. And and what about kind of food miles with other? I, I mean, I, I I've heard crazy stories of us importing milk from New Zealand recently. But I mean, there was a prime example. Um, uh, of, uh, can I say a brand name? I'm going to. I don't care. Oatly. <laughs> Um, when they were doing all this advertising about sustainability, when that's produced uh, in Sweden, but it turned out most of the oats were grown elsewhere in Europe. So they were being shipped to Sweden, then being ultra processed. All of the byproducts then are going to pig farms in that area. So it's not really that uh, ethically vegan. And then it's being shipped all the way back to the UK. And when you look at the, emissions if you include the transport and everything into that it's horrendous yeah, and yeah. i think it's, it's interesting because a couple of the studies when uh, this other one uh, grant and hicks which is in science and they were doing a life cycle analysis and this is really interesting because they were looking at cumulative energy demand um across the different products they focused on soya almond and, and dairy as well they're just the, the key three that they focused on um and and actually the highest one was soya milk um, or the soya beverage and and I think that the reason is because um, it's generally on the shelves longer so so they had a statistic where they said soya was on the shelf for 7.8 days almond 5.9 days and dairy milk 2.6 days so if you add in the so that's where that added if you take that out it's it's very different picture but because they're they're accounting for that cumulative energy to store it effectively in situ in the shops, which mm. is part of it's part of that whole uh, chain, then that's really interesting as well. And and I think that element of you were talking about with oat milk and I often question when I go home to Scotland and I'm just like, it's the land of oats. I was like, why aren't we the lead market in oat milk for goodness sake? Yeah, and yeah. I had a conversation with a farmer like from like where, where my mom was based uh, in Scotland. And uh, and it was a great conversation. He said, actually, he was in the process back then. That was a few years ago of trying to set up a farm so that he could become the lead uh, farmer in oat milk. Because that wouldn't that be amazing is oat milk made in this country that's, uh, that has that, again, that, that sort of low... Uh, Okay. There's one set up in Cambridgeshire, I think it was, and was in quite a public uh, battle with, well, I'll say them again, Oatly. Um, 
uh, over the use of their name. Um, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was nothing like that. But he did win in the end. So th- there, there is an oat milk producer yeah, over no, here. Definitely. And I think, you know, and it's it's great because I, what I would say as well is often soya gets a bit of a bashing because people are making assumptions that that's being shipped in. But actually, when you look at the main brands, most of it comes from Europe actually rather than being shipped so um it's really that's really not generally an issue because I know that some people have asked me that and are concerned oh gosh if I buy soya what's it and actually to be honest most of these organizations if you go onto their website they are very transparent about where their source comes from um so if you want to check just 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 look it up directly right to finish off um, Kerry, do you have any kind of bottom lines about your, what, you know, you've given us so many brilliant bits of advice there. What would you say your absolute take home message is? I think that um, the take home message really about milk is all milks can be part of a fantastic balanced diet, but just be really open to the fact that you have to be aware of where some of the um some of the gaps may be depending on which milk because I appreciate some people have a favorite some people have you know choices but just be aware and make sure that you make up those um gaps in in your diet and be aware of these added sugars um and the lack of fortified additives as well thank you Charlie dare I ask you what your bottom line is do you know what I I firmly do believe that everybody has the right to their own free choice of what they want to eat and what they want to drink but like Kerry says, I think we just need to be aware and understand what we're putting in our bodies. And, you know, you, you only live once. Get it right. Look after your health. And, God, I've got to say it. If you want the best health, you want something that's n- nutritiously complete and a superfood. So there's nothing better than dairy milk. So come on. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Um, I think I think my bottom line is, I have really learned a lot about the variation in plant-based milks. Do not assume that it is healthy. Read the label and always know where you have gaps, as Kerry says, and do not underestimate the importance of calcium for your children. If you think your kids can't drink milk, please speak to somebody who can advise you on it because it really is important. Yeah, so Kerry, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It, it, it has—it's it, been brilliant. Um, and like I say, regardless of your diet, we really do need to understand what we're feeding ourselves. And and it's just good to have these open, honest conversations and sharing different views. So thank you so much for coming on. We've really appreciated it. Thank you very much, Kerry. Real, real pleasure um, chatting to you both. And there, there was so much more that I could have said or I wanted to say, but um, but then. You know, this is this is the first of many podcasts for you guys. <laughs> and well, do you know what? I think it might be the first of many for you to join us as well because I've really enjoyed Thanks, it, Kerry. and you, you've given us some great Thank input. You very much. So that's it, Rach. We've done it. The first one's over. Our very first podcast. And you know, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and keep following us. And again, follow us on our social media at the Pharmacy Podcast, which is on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. And if you've got any questions or suggestions of any guests that you want us to talk to, please do drop us a line. And otherwise, we look forward to next time. 